Stockholm, Sweden. This is the arbitration station. I'm Joel Lodkis Kullbari uh, in the most boring room of uh, Mannheimer Svartling <laughs> Law Firm together with Brian Karik. Hello, but it's insulated. It really is. Yeah, this is, a, this is an effort on behalf of our listeners. Everything for quality. Right. Well, I feel like, have you ever seen the movie Hustle and Flow? No. Where they staple up like McDonald's cartons along the wall to make the sound better? Oh, that we should have done so yeah. many times before. <laughs> Just picture that in your mind when you listen to this. <laughs> How are you doing, Brian Kotick? I'm good. I'm smelling spring, as Swedes like to say. <laughs> Doesn't sound as good in English. <laughs> I know. <laughs> sounds a bit weird. <laughs> it really does. I think we have a very interesting episode. I'm com- excited. Coming up. Uh, first of all, you talked to Alexander Forster. Forster. For. Yeah, we're back to this. <laughs> Pronunciation. <laughs> Firster. Firster, yeah. Okay, whatever. Alexander, who is also... Forrest Whitaker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who listens to the podcast, so he's going to listen to this for sure and hear us embarrass ourselves. Sorry, Alexander. You talk about uh, Frankfurt as a place of arbitration, right? Exactly. I haven't actually listened to it. I wanted to to be on it so much, but I've had a very busy schedule moving between three different countries, so I've been... Out of the loop. I, you're forgiven on this one. If it was two countries, I would, I would say no. But three countries is is the limit. And then we do something we should have done a few weeks ago, really. I think I uh, tweeted about it. Oh, you did. That's I, right. Yeah, but so yeah, and I, I'm thankful for to a, to a former student of mine for bringing this up and to for for directing us to another podcast really, called Opening Arguments, where they discuss Stormy Daniels and uh, the legal conflict between her and the current president of the United States. Who, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll move into... They have pseudonyms in yeah. the dispute, <laughs> which are very funny, but we'll get into that. But what they did, they, they addressed various aspects of this legal dispute on, on the Opening Arguments podcast, which is an excellent podcast, but they also talk about the arbitration agreement signed between, we think, Stormy Daniels and... Somebody else. Right, which could be the president or not. So we thought we'd take a swing at the arbitration aspects of this, uh, this uh, juicy dispute that's uh, hitting the news. And we, that should be our job, really. We should be just looking through news and trying to find arbitration angles all the time. And that almost <laughs> never happens. So this is a, it's an open goal for us. Sink your teeth and jaw. <laughs> I'm looking forward to talking to Stormer Daniels, also because it seems the case is seated in California. Yes. Your home turf. <laughs> I mean, it's really perpetuating the stereotype that we're just, you know, porn stars and media outlets. And um, presidents. Unfortunately. <laughs> and then for Happy Fun Time, we do what? We will be talking about internships and how <laughs> if two months working at a law firm is going to give you any type of experience, and yet people revere them as... Um, practical experience in arbitration. We all did them. We all did them, and people look for them. But we're really going to talk about what you actually did during them and whether people should look to them. <laughs> whether pe- people get paid to do right. the work, I guess. That's, that's one angle that I'm interested in. Very good. I think it's time to go. So we are sitting here with Alexander Forster, who is a partner at Mannheimer Svartling. You're the first one of our firm that we are interviewing on the arbitration station. Oh, thank you. I'm proud. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I was also the first uh, non-Swede uh, as a partner of our firm. So. Oh, there you, you're, yeah. you're one of many firsts. Um, and you are a German and Swedish trained lawyer. Um, you were based in Berlin, but now or in Frankfurt, sorry. Uh, but now you're here in Stockholm. Um, and you're admitted to both bars, but you're admitted in you were admitted in Frankfurt in Germany, but you're also admitted in Sweden. And you've been working at Mannheimer Svartling before it was called Mannheimer Svartling, right? Yes, really. It, I started with Mannheimer Settelöv, uh-huh. the Gothenburg part of the firm, and uh, I actually started with the firm only two weeks after my daughter was born, so I know exactly that it will be 30 years on the 1st of May this year. Wow. 
And how did you get it? How did you come to be in touch with Mannheimer Spectacle? Uh, there's only one explanation. Okay. Uh, my wife is Swedish. Oh, she con there you con go. convinced me to, <laughs> to go to Sweden instead of to London. <laughs> and can you tell us about the cases that you've been working on for the many, many years you've been yes, a part I of? I mean, the in the beginning, I worked with a lot of different cases, not only disputes. I was. Uh, uh, much involved in, in mergers and acquisitions, we advised Swedish, normally Swedish clients in acquiring businesses in Germany. Then I did some transactional work with uh, banks and restructuring. And then I think uh, 20 years ago, I specialized more and more in, in dispute resolution, first court litigation, but then uh, arbitration as well. And you also sit as arbitrator? Yes, I think um, since uh, approximately 10 years, I received more and more appointments as as arbitrator and I have the advantage sitting in Sweden that I have a not uh, Swedish passport so I can be uh, neutral when Swedish and foreign countries uh, foreign companies uh, have a dispute here. So you're not a citizen? No. Oh, because we talked about that on our dual national yeah. segment. That was actually when I started with Mannheimer I uh, recognized that Sweden will now join, uh, will then join the European Union. And I was not supposed to change uh, citizenship to become a Swedish advocate. So I could become a Swedish advocate without changing I citizenship. See. Well, that's very smart. Because yeah. Joel was like, maybe I'm now conflicting myself out of many cases <laughs> because of that. Um, and what about outside of working? What other things are you involved with in the arbitration community? Yes, I, I am proud to be a lecturer at the Frankfurt University of Applied Science, where we have a master's program where students learn uh, not only to, to draft contracts, but also to draft arbitration agreements, and they should learn about how to use this tool. Um, they are mainly company lawyers, not so much uh, future counsels, but I think it's very important, in, particularly in Germany, to spread the idea of arbitration as an alternative dispute resolution mechanism to those people who are then working in the in the business. Right. Um, well, let's, I mean, you have the very difficult task because Germany is such, you know, a big heavy hitter in the world about discussing Germany as an arbitral seat and not necessarily Germany, but Frankfurt or, you know, the different cities around Germany. Um, can you just kind of set the scene for us about German arbitration law? Yes. Uh, first of all, Germany is not one country. There are different business centers, and I am a lot of lawyers, and I think uh, there are many others who will not agree on certain points <laughs> with me. So there are <coughs> different opinions. But when it comes to arbitration law, I think um, compared to Sweden, Germany doesn't have the same history, not such a long history. Arbitration is still uh, struggling. We need to convince people in the business society that arbitration is the better way, in particular when it comes to international disputes. Um, there is um, high, uh, what I would say, is a competition from highly specialized and competent courts. Uh, and many German business people think that, that they are better off with going to a court. Right. Um, when you see that from a foreigner's perspective, it's different because uh, representing foreign companies for, for a lot of uh, is I see that, that they have extreme difficulties to understand not only the language but also the habits. Uh, I mean, you can have counsel who will be able to translate, but it's difficult for a foreign party to really get its day in court because right. they do not understand the very short sessions uh, and, and they do not feel comfortable with the kind of judges who are very strict and very dominating the proceedings. Are they strict in the formalistic sense or in their interpretation of the law or? Both. I mean, uh, they are, um, <clears throat> the, the court sessions are very, sh very brief and, and the, they are controlled by the, by the judges. Mm. Uh, so they, foreign, foreign parties think that they are biased when they, at a very early stage, come up with a um, suggestion for a settlement. That is not always true, but it, it is presumed to be so. And, and that has to do with the techniques which they uh, develop and that they are trained with. And perhaps you have heard about the so-called Relationstechnik, uh, which is a um, quite formalized method to prepare the decision of a case, um, a technique of applying law to fact, giving uh, the judge a wider power to decide on the conclusiveness of the claim submissions and to decide on the admission of evidence. Mm -hmm. I and mean, when I represented Swedish clients, they could not understand that the judge will uh, decide 
if a witness is, be, is to be heard or not. That uh, would be unthinkable in Sweden. Right. But in Germany, it's, it's clear, clear that if the judge thinks it's not relevant, uh, then you don't need, need to hear the, the, uh, the witness. What does it take to be a judge in Germany? You need to pass the, through the, the two um, uh, state examens uh -huh. um, and then with a very good grade and then you uh, enter the route of, uh, of the court. Um, so it's uh, a profession. Yeah, it's a profession, okay. yes, yes. Okay. But the, the legal training is focusing on training, the training for, for judges. So it, right. to become a lawyer, a counsel, even though there are some parts of the practical training Afterwards, it is difficult. You need to switch the perspective totally, and you need to learn other skills than you are trained to. Right. So, I mean, we're talking about the court system, but do you think that arbitration has evolved, or do you think it's a strong culture of arbitration? Yeah, I, I think it has compete? become, and, and, yeah. and uh, it is still a um, presumption that the German arbitrators are acting like court judges, but that is not true any longer. I mean, okay. there are so many people, in particular the younger uh, arbitration professionals, we are, which are, they are really international. They have been trained outside Germany. They have seen other systems. They are well aware that that we cannot uh, uh, offer so say, foreign parties exactly the domestic court system in in the form of an arbitration. Right. There is much more best practice uh, in German uh, arbitration, which is actually uh, like international best practice. Okay. Now, should we talk about Germany, the arbitration law? Y yes, perhaps. I mean, um, <clears throat> Germany is a model law country um, since the reform of the 10th book of the German Code of Civil Procedure, uh, which was then reformed in 1997. And um, I would say there are very few surprises. Uh, I mean, if, if you know the model law and you agree on, on, on Germany as a seat of arbitration, you will get... Um, German arbitration law, and there are not so much uh, things which you, as a foreigner, are surprised of. There's something which we need to mention that is um, connected to the formal requirements for an arbitral for arbitration agreement. Uh -huh. There are some provisions in the German arbitration law uh, where, in particular, when it comes to individual persons, uh, they are seen as consumers. There's a special formal requirement. Of, of a separate deed for the arbitration agreement. That could be surprising. Uh, <clears throat> and many business transactions would have to be uh, notarized by a German notary public, in particular if you, if you sell the shares of a German GmbH, then th there's no need for that because there oh, is okay. the duty of the notary public to explain to the parties the consequences of an arbitration clause. But uh, if you have, for instance, a, a partner of a private equity uh, entity selling his share in, in a limited partnership or so, there that, that could be special requirements, so you need to pay attention. So it would be separate from the underlying contract, you would have a, a different certificate? Yes, yes. Oh. And, and the notary <coughs> publics actually take, have a more active role. You know, in the United States, a notary public is someone who stamps and signs. Yeah. But, but so your notary publics are a bit more active. Yeah, that, that, are, that are different because they read the whole deed. Yeah. Ah, and then they actually counsel <coughs> these parties? Yeah, they have a duty to counsel both parties okay. and to make sure that the parties really understand what they're signing. I mean, that's great. But are they lawyers themselves? They are lawyers. Ah, they're very okay. well-trained and very well-paid lawyers. Okay. <laughs> uh, so everybody tries to become a notary, but uh, it's very difficult. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. And then, I mean, we're talking about the court systems kind of in parallel, but what about as a support system to arbitration? Yeah, I think it, it, it works. Um, in um, Germany was one of the, or the courts of Hamburg were actually one of the first courts in Germany who uh, also assisted a foreign arbitral tribunal, in that case from Denmark, uh, in an, a procedure to, to, to call and to hear uh, witnesses, uh, a case which, where I was involved in, and that was at that time, for 15 years ago, uh, very surprising. But they did that, and um, it worked out very well. Mm -hmm. uh, so we got the evidence which we <coughs> needed. <laughs> um, Does it vary from city to city? I mean, we're talking about Germany in general here. But yeah, I mean, you have to be careful when you select... Um, a place in Germany as the seat of arbitration, because the seat of arbitration will also 
governed than the uh, jurisdiction of the Court of Appeal, who is uh, responsible for the uh, challenge proceedings. And since there are, I think, uh, 24 appeal courts in Germany, uh, you can imagine that not all of them are so familiar with with arbitration law, but mm-hmm. in the big business centers like Frankfurt or Düsseldorf or Hamburg, I think you are you are safe. In particular in Hamburg, where there's a tradition that all judges, even though the language of the courts is German, they they need to speak English. Oh, really? Uh, Hamburg perceives themselves as a part of London, so <laughs> so uh, whenever you ask a sweet uh, a Hamburg law, uh, judge uh, to get a translation, then they will. Just shake your head as you need to understand it. <laughs> really? Yes. Wow. Uh, and so what, I mean, is that because the subject matter of the disputes are similar to those in London or no, why? I would, I would say, particularly with Hamburg, is there's a lot of maritime business and, and transport and there's a lot of long tradition right. of ha- having international parties. But also we see now the Frankfurt court have uh, um, issued or there, there is a, a declaration that in future there should be it should be possible to have international disputes um, handled in English by the Frankfurt uh, District Court. Uh, that is an um, idea which should help the German courts to compete with the with the English courts in the case of Brexit. Brexit. That's. I mean, we talked about that with another guest, and I think that's very interesting. And I actually wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Why do you think it is there an <coughs> influx in Frankfurt of new business, or I know that Goldman Sachs transferred some people over to Frankfurt from London. Do you think that that's actually happening? Yes, it is. It okay. is. I mean, you, you just see that the the rents for, for business space are uh, uh, rocketing up. No so, way. So there are a lot of banks who are actually moving to Frankfurt, and that will have an impact also on on, on cases, which right. are handled, also, uh, disputes handled in Frankfurt. But what we already see now, I mean, there are a lot of financial disputes in the, in the district court of Frankfurt, and you have all the, the documentation in English. And in, in most cases, you would like to avoid uh, submitting translations because the translations are not correct. Even though uh-huh. you, you said you have a certified translator, they will never really catch the, the idea of the contract. Right, right. Well, that's, I mean, that's... Great to hear this confirmation because I, you just hear all this conjecture about what's mm-hmm. happening in Germany after. Birth. I mean, I, I think when the when there will be these chambers for international matters in Frankfurt, uh, the advantage with that will be that you will get judges who are better equipped, better uh, trained for international yeah. cases. There's now already um, a tendency that the court accepts. Um, uh, lawyers from leading law firms, international law firms, uh, to become judges. And if those are then sitting, uh, hearing cases, I think the quality of, for the decisions Definitely. Will, will increase. That does not mean that they will re- actually um, render their decisions in in, um, uh, in English. Okay. But they do understand the material, the basic material, much better. It doesn't have to be tra- yeah. Nothing has to be yeah. translated, which is good. I mean, <clears throat> so let's talk about you know more about German arbitration culture, and especially the DIS rules, which you are you were recently p- appointed to the Council of DIS. Yeah, the, the, there is a now for the first time um, a supervisory body uh, within the DIS. DIS is the uh, German Institution for Arbitration, uh, which will have certain uh, tasks uh, which were earlier within the powers of the of the tribunal. And that is, uh, for instance, the question of the challenge of arbitrators, uh-huh. the topic which we actually have here in the moot court. Right. Uh, just now, that is now outsourced to this um, uh, DIS council, as well as uh, the fixing of fees, which mm-hmm. might be difficult to see if, if um, but um, if, if we have cases which take much, much longer time than anticipated, uh, we have to review if there's a reason for uh, Increasing the fees, or if right. there's already settlement, the council or the the, the three um, lawyers who's sitting in the, in the in the department of this council will then um, uh, be able to reduce the fees as well. So it's a bit like the board of directors at the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce. Yes, but but not for all of the tasks, only for this these limited. There, there is okay. in addition to the DIS council, there is the appointment committee, which is then 
uh, activated when the DIS needs to appoint an arbitrator. I so see. that is different. I mean, there's so much that the DIS does. There's conciliation rules, mediation rules, expert determination, sports arbitration. Yes, yes. Yeah. What kind of sports do they... Uh, um, football, mostly? In, no, not, not football. I think all kinds of, of sports. Oh, okay. And there are a lot of federations in, in Germany who have a mandatory... Uh, provision that that DIS arbitration should uh, re resolve disputes, but that is a very specific yeah. area, and <laughs> and you might have heard also that there is a, a decision of the Munich Court of Appeal in this respect, who uh, resulted in some question marks because uh, uh, so the sports arbitration is is really differ different. Right, right, right. Yeah. So what in these 2018 changes? What what are some aspects that we see? That have changed. Um, I mean, the, the, there are some institutional changes by introducing this uh, DIS council and also giving the uh, DIS the possibility to admit to administer the, the, the costs and, and the and the advance payments uh, uh -huh. for the arbitrators, which was really demand from 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 practicing arbitrators because earlier they need to establish their own trust accounts and that is a lot of extra work, which is not so. Um, which they do not like so much. Yes. So that will be administered by the by the DIS. They also introduced a, a totally new case handling system, including uh, elect, elect, digital file, filing, and um, then of course the, the one of the tasks was to streamline the proceedings, to shorten the deadlines, mm -hmm. um, and to increase efficiency of the arbitration proceedings. Uh, another thing I was thinking about is that the new rules deliberately did not implement any rules on emergency arbitration. Okay. And, and that is, I think, due to the fact that the German state courts are very efficient in, in, in rendering interim measure decisions. Uh, it's, it's quite easy if you are well prepared to get a, a decision from a court, even though ex parte in some cases, uh, very quick, the same day or the day, day after, it is counterbalanced by uh, the fact that if you are wrong, if you are not uh, able to prove your case at the end, you may um, pay a lot of damages to the other party. Uh, but still, it, it works very well, and, and German parties are accustomed to it, so there was no need really to, to implement emergency uh, arbitration rules into the DIS. And was this a very long process, these reforms, these rules changes? Yeah, I do not know what you mean by, by long, but it actually <laughs> took, I think, more than 18 months. And okay. that was due to the idea that uh, the DIS wanted to involve as many parties as possible. There were a lot of working groups. Um, they wanted to get the input from the users, from the German business society. So there were a lot of uh, in-house counsel who were asked to contribute. Okay. And I think the result is is, uh, is a good product, which also helps. And I think you should not uh, forget that uh, there is a need to, to um, convince German business society to adapt arbitration or to, uh, to select arbitration in specific cases. Right. And it will be easier with these cases for for the um, German companies when they negotiate arbitration clauses to convince uh, foreign parties to accept DIS arbitration. Right. What do you think? I mean, if let's say you're in a meeting, a drafting meeting, and you think, okay, well, we should include DIS arbitration. What would be the selling points uh, for DIS arbitration? I think it's it's fast and efficient. Okay. Uh, that the is, of German course, way. yes, but, but <laughs> that of course could also raise question marks because still there is a presumption that the German arbitrators uh, are too much influenced by the the German uh, judge way of looking at, uh, right. into things, and they are too um, inquisitorial. But I think if you then select the right person to be the chairman, you can avoid that very much. So a, a German judge is allowed to sit as arbitrator? Yeah, but, but that, I think, is, is not a good idea. I would right. never recommend, a, uh, or I would never say never, but I very seldom recommend a client to, to select a judge. I mean, yeah. if you want to get arbitration, you should select an arbitrator, not a judge. Right, right. Because that's been a critique of the Swedish arbitration system that mm. you sometimes, because you have judges that are appointed mm. and sometimes they bring their domestic biases. Yeah. I mean, there are some uh, retired judges who really 
changed their way of working and became uh, very experienced arbitrators. There are some, yeah. but uh, otherwise, if it, if a judge was still in office, want to become uh, or get appointed as arbitrator, he needs in certain uh, parts of Germany the. Um, the permission of the Ministry of Justice, and it's a difficult, difficult way to, to yes. get him appointed. How? When uh, was your first appointment as an arbitrator? I think it was already in two thousand three. A long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, were you party appointed or? No, no, no. That was a surprise. I was directly appointed as as chairman. Oh, and, okay. And, uh, but I had two very experienced co-arbitrators, so I learned a lot from them. <laughs> and that, I think, is a good a good idea. Also, my first case with the SEC was a case where I was actually the youngest one. Uh, and I learned a lot from my co-arbitrators. Yeah. Uh, but I would say in, in, in Scandinavia, there, there's more collegiality. <laughs> yes. Exactly. It's easier to work together. But, uh. <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, it's exciting to see this post-Brexit German revolution i'm i feel like i'm seeing so it'll be interesting to see how arbitration keeps up with that yeah i i think i mean if you look to um uh, the german the most successful part of the german industry the export wunder the uh, machinery export to china russia mm-hmm. they're very used to international arbitration uh, in, in many cases they use icc but i can also imagine that they will now reconsider uh, using ICC because there are a lot of topics which are perhaps a little bit difficult to manage and, and they are yeah. time consuming uh, by using DAS rules or Stockholm rules uh, you could get the faster result. What is um, the what is the most common foreign country to come and use the DIS rules would you say? Would it be China or? No, I think most of the German-Chinese disputes are actually handled either in, in Stockholm or in Hong Kong. Oh, okay. But I think, uh, I mean, uh, German rules could be used by uh, by a lot of um, in a European uh, parties. Okay. Uh, but again, I mean, the, the most important thing for the future marketing is to convince the, the also uh, p- the business inside Germany to use it for domestic arbitration yeah, because that right. <coughs> in, in many cases, in com- complex cases. Um, Arbitrators are much better uh, prepared to deal with these issues than court judges. Right. Well, thank you. I thank mm-hmm. you for sitting down and talking to us and taking thank on this big task. Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure. And as I said to you before, I really uh, um, appreciate and I, and I am so happy that this new medium, the arbitration <laughs> s- uh, station, exists. I, I listen to it uh, whenever I can on the, my way to the office and... I also recommend it to my students, so perfect. It's, a, it's a perfect medium for spreading the uh, idea of, of international arbitration and best practice arbitration. Well, glad to have you. Thank you. On a dark and stormy night <laughs> in 2006. Just kidding. I'll have a dark and stormy. How many how many play on words can I do uh, with this? But we have the case here between plaintiff Miss Stephanie Clifford, a.k.a. Stormy Daniels, a.k.a. Peggy Peterson versus Donald J. Trump, a.k.a. David Dennison, a.k.a. Essential Consultants Limited Liability Company. Allegedly, though, I guess. Allegedly. But that's what the complaint is. Uh has been uh, referenced to for the defendant. Can, can we start here with the fact that it is PP versus DD? <laughs> of all, in, in the history of fake acronyms, PP is not the best. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Peggy Peterson, which is Stormy Daniels' alter ego slash pseudonym. And then DD is Donald Trump, um, and that's the pseudonym. And this is brought up... Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah, good, you have to keep correcting me. Um, you have to. We're going to talk about these pseudonyms because that's who's involved in the arbitration or the uh, the confidentiality agreement. But it's not really a confidentiality; agreement, it's a settlement agreement. But we'll talk about that. So, in the summer of two thousand six, Miss Clifford had an intimate relationship or began her intimate relationship with Mr. Trump in Lake Tahoe and continued it into two thousand seven. Um, including a meeting in the bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel, which is actually really, really beautiful. So we can... Uh, not anymore, it's not. Not anymore, no, it's tainted. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and then in the wake of the Access Hollywood tape um, that everyone knows about where Trump was overheard or, and recorded talking about sexually assaulting a female, there was a lot of women that came out and including included in this group of women was Miss Stephanie Clifford. Uh, is that her name? Yeah, Stephanie Clifford, a.k.a. Stormy Daniels. So this is like the premise of the scene. And then what happened was that uh, Mr. Trump, with the assistance of his attorney, Mr. Cohen, uh, they aggressively sought to silence Miss Clifford as part of an effort to avoid her telling the truth during the presidential election campaign. I've never felt more like the, an actual devil's advocate, but I have to just point out that you're now basically reading from the contentions that uh, that PP is yes. bringing. Right? Yes, yeah. that's so, why I said aggressively. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that's why I said. Yes, yeah, so yeah. as soon as there's an adjective involved in any kind of legal language, <laughs> yeah. you know it's it's a party arguing. So right. just for the record, we have to say that this is uh, based largely on one version of the events. Yes, because they haven't responded yet in the court case. And so the court case is seeking a declaratory judgment to say whether this hush agreement uh, that they, again, call it in the, <laughs> in the claim, but whether the settlement agreement is valid or not. Um, and so they, they're seeking a declaratory, uh, declaratory relief in the California District Court uh, for this settlement agreement, which leads us to the settlement agreement itself. And sorry, I'm flipping through all the pages. Um, but an exhibit to the complaint is Exhibit 1, and that's the confidential settlement agreement and mutual release uh, of, of rights. And so that's where we get PP and DD. Um, and then you have EC, but that's another one that we'll talk about in a second. So basically what it says in the recitals is that prior to the entry of this agreement, PP, which is Stormy Daniels, came into possession of certain, quote, confidential information, it's a defined term, pertaining to DD, allegedly Trump, as more fully defined below, only some of which is in tangible form and limited information, certain images and text messages, which were authored by DD, okay? Now... PP claims that she's been damaged by alleged action to her by DD, which is Trump, allegedly. Some tortious injury. And DD claims that he could potentially be damaged or that he has been damaged by PP, including but not limited to the alleged threatening, selling, transferring, licensing, publicly disseminating these images and other property and confidential information. So they both have claims. You have the tort claim and you have the disclosure of confidential information claim. So this agreement basically says we'll release each other of these claims. Yeah, so they both have claims against each other, and they it's it's a settlement in the traditional legal kind of sense. That right. By this, we we are all over with each other. We don't have to to move forward. Exactly. And with that, Stormy Daniels was given one hundred thirty thousand dollars, which was paid by EC, which is the uh, what's it called? Essential consultant. Yes, essential consultant. The most made-up corporate name. <laughs> which was found out when you check into the Delaware registry, because this was registered in Delaware, which the only requirement to register a business in Delaware is that you're doing something for-profit, but it doesn't have to be for-profit because you have a non-profit. Anyway, it's super easy. They found out that just a month, I think, before the election, this, this uh, entity was made up to pay these bills to Stormy Daniels. Um, Which is, of course, why most Americans and both both lawyers and general media are interested in this, because it's it's just prior to the election, which violates right. uh, supposedly election laws in like 19 different ways to, exactly. to pay undisclosed money to, to people who might very much influence the presidential election. So the whole funny thing about this is that D.D. is not saying who he is. We don't know who D.D. is yet. So we think it's Trump, and that's what Stormy Daniels says, but... They haven't agreed to this. And the implication of not agreeing to this is basically saying he's still denying that he's had any relations with Stormy Daniels. Can he, if he does say that he is DD, then what he's basically saying is, according to the recitals, that she has some information against him that's supposed to be confidential. So they're kind of in a catch-22 here. Yeah, the way the the good people that over at Opening Arguments phrased it is that Stormy Daniels is a legal genius. <laughs> legal genius. <laughs> exactly. And I don't even think that they had intended to, like, capture him in this hole. But he, you know, you can't lie your way out of a box all the time. So then... Joel will talk about this, how this even <laughs> relates remotely to arbitration. Yeah, because if you if you thought this was this was juicy enough with the porn star <laughs> suing the president of the United States over 
various aspects of their sexual relationship. We haven't even come to the arbitration aspect <laughs> of it. <laughs> so in this settlement agreement, there is uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life in, in Article 5.2 of the settlement agreement. And I, well, I mean, partly this is a function, I think, of uh, of just U.S. lawyers. It is, and I've taught this in a class before. <laughs> so maybe to you this isn't as horrendous as it is to me. Right. Because this, this is so far from the ICC standard clause you get off of the ICC <laughs> webpage that, that it's it's like, a, I don't know, it even continues on the next day. Yeah, it's like half a page and a lot of phrases that don't mean anything and all of the basics you want in an arbitration clause, uh, it's not there, basically. <laughs> uh, but basically... What it says is that DD and PP agree that all disputes which may arise between them shall be solved in arbitration. So w- what happened is that, uh, well, well, maybe we should back it up. Part of the problem, once again, is that DD has not signed the right. settlement agreement and consequently not signed the arbitration agreement either. On the signature pages plural, both uh, for for uh, uh, the major signature the, at the end of the contract and also on each page where you um, put your, your uh, acronyms down. It's not DD. It's supposed to be DD, but it is EC. Right. So formally speaking, it seems that the parties to the settlement agreement and the arbitration agreement then by extension is PP and EC, mm-hmm. this corporation that was set up in Delaware just prior to the, the signing of this contract. Right. So and this is where the the arbitration lawyers in us are are get, getting started, because <laughs> the arbitration agreements is uh, by the wording of it is between DD and PP, but it's signed by PP and EC. Mm-hmm. So the question is, of course, is this a valid arbitration clause? Right. What do we think? Well, I, yeah, we'll do one at a time because there's <laughs> other issues involved in this contract. I mean, and and another thing to say, yeah. I, I won't say that. Okay, let's stick to the point. The point is, is this a valid arbitration agreement? Well, first of all, you do not have to sign. We can just, like, you don't need to be a signatory to the contract in order to be bound by the arbitration agreement. Not even in the normally very formalistic United States. Exactly. You can form a contract mm-hmm. without actually signing the dotted line on that contract. Exactly. So if you look at the performance of the parties, you have EC giving 130000 for her hushness. So you could basically say that they are the contracting parties. EC was the one that signed it. But now could you say that EC and PP can arbitrate over dispute between PP and DD? And the reason this is a live issue is because there was an arbitration or there is one pending, right? Initiated by EC. Right. (laughs) Against PP. Against PP. Asking for what? To solve the dispute... The, uh, the merits of the dispute, which, which is, is she can't talk. So EC... In court, they're only getting the declaratory judgment. That pay, uh, Stormy Daniels is getting a declaratory judgment in court saying that this entire settlement agreement is void, okay, so that they don't even have to go to arbitration and blah, blah, blah. They, EC has initiated arbitration to say, not only do you have to put a kibosh on the court, claim, but all everything has to done, be done confidentiality through arbitration. So her, I mean, there isn't really even a dispute yet. I, well, she's now started talking. That's the problem. Yeah. So so we don't know that much about the arbitration because it's no. arbitration. And as, as we all know, that is a secret confidential form of dispute resolution. But before we address the validity of the clause, let me just go through some funny aspects of this clause, just because I think most of our arbitration-skilled listeners would would enjoy this. So, um, not just the language itself. (laughs) It says, to the full extent of the law, like three times. Is that a common phrase? In to US? the full extent of the law? Yeah. No, that's a bit of superfluous. Yeah. <laughs> so they agreed to arbitration uh, to the greatest extent permitted by the law, as if there are more or less great extents of arbitration. Well, I think what they're referring to, which is what they say in the podcast, is that California has a lot of limits to not arbitrability, but to the things that can be 
arbitra- uh, California has like the most robust laws in the country. It says to hold the arbitration clause not binding. But okay, the, uh, th- this I listened to the podcast as well, and now I, I take their word for the fact that this arbitration it, it's a sole arbitrator. It's it is seated in California, mm-hmm. but that is not very clear just from the clause reading it's this not. with the with the with my arbitration glasses on. When it comes to applicable law, the clause reads as follow. Um, arbitration shall take place before JAMS, J-A-M-S, an institution, pursuant to their institutional rules, including interim measures, and the law selected by DD. Trump. S- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Such selection shall be limited to either California, Nevada, or Arizona. And then... Uh, it goes on, there's still no end of the sentence, or before Action Dispute Resolution Services, pursuant to the Action Dispute Resolution Services rules, including interim measures, and the law selected by DD, whichever the claimant elects upon filing an arbitration, in a the location selected by DD, and will be heard and decided, and it goes on and on and on. And that is what we know about the law applicable, that yeah. if if DD chooses jams, DD may select California, Nevada, or Arizona as the law, mm-hmm. which could of course mean either the substantive law or the procedural law, i.e., the place of arbitration. Right. Because the place of arbitration and uh, the laws governing the substance, there's no distinction made between these in the clause. Although it also says further down in the arbitration clause, which which as by now you you have realized this clause never ends that the parties shall have the right to conduct discovery in accordance with the California Code of Civil Procedure or any similar provision existing in the jurisdiction selected by DD and blah, 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 blah. So basically, I'm guessing because this type of uh, arcane details are not appreciated in the United States typically, by the law selected by DD, the clause is intended to cover both the law governing the procedure and the law governing the That's the, the typical interpretation in the U.S. So then we have to assume that DD has elected to go for Californian law based on what the opening arguments people discuss. Right, because they initiated their arbitration in California. So that was like their implicit decision to have California law apply, I guess. I mean, I'm sure if we maybe if we look at the request, it's completely clear how they've decided to conduct this arbitration. But. I highly doubt that, given the, the language <laughs> of the actual arbitration clause. It made me think, I don't even know, probably, but I'm not sure if this type of clause would be allowed under Swedish law, for example, when you have uh, an obviously stronger party against an obviously weaker party. The and unilateral. You, exactly. And you get one party... Because it's very clear that the assumption here is that one party is going to be the claimant and one is going to be the respondent. This mm-hmm. is this is not a, a bilateral, like, uh, right. uh, complementary relationship in any way. This is clear that it even says that DD gets to choose the applicable law. So even if it's the other way around, right. it's, then it's the respondent. If DD is the respondent, then DD gets to elect the, the applicable law, which, of course, is an important decision in, in an arbitration. Yeah. To give that unilaterally, I don't know if that... It probably would be allowed, but I think you could at least raise an argument. It is, yeah, it is allowed. Well, I don't, I don't know about California arbitration law. I guess it's one of those. It says they have robust. That podcast said they had robust laws um, relating to the un, invalid, how to find the invalidity of an arbitration agreement. But then, of course, the key question is. And this is where it becomes interesting because there is an arbitration and it seems that the sole arbitrator in question has uh, implicitly, if not explicitly or expressly, uh, accepted jurisdiction over DD's claim against PP, a.k.a. Stormy Daniels. Right. So we do have an arbitration. Well, EC's claim. Yeah. <laughs> ah. <laughs> it's so hard. I'm really trying to be a law professor and keep the term straight. But when, mm. when they, with the parties themselves, do such a good job of confusing things. So, right. So, EC initiated the arbitration. Although the arbitration clause says that the uh, arbitration agreement is between DD and PP. Yeah. Right. So, let me just uh, try to... to, uh, to lay this out on the table and and reason as I speak. So if I were the sole arbitrator Mm -hmm. and EC, um, uh, 
corporate entity in Delaware, initiated arbitration against what seems to be a non-participating respondent, at least right. as far as we know. It's an ex-party proceeding. Exactly. I would, as an arbitrator, uh, regardless of which law applies, I would be interested in examining my own jurisdiction. If the respondent party does not participate, I, as an arbitrator, would want to really make sure that this is an arbitration agreement that, that works. Right. That doesn't seem to have been the case. Yeah, I, we don't know. We really. don't know. Okay. But they, I mean, they did, the arbitration has been initiated. We don't know how much that the arbitrator has gone into analyzing this. Um, <clears throat> yeah. It um, gets, it gets fishy because the e- EC is, well, I mean, what, so you, your, your point is that you would have to examine this first, which yeah, I Yeah, and prima facie, I'd be, I'd be cautious mm-hmm. if a party who is not actually on, on the wording of it party to the arbitration agreement tries to initiate uh, an arbitration. Right. I think it, it's it's not a, a very long shot to argue that this is a third party in terms of the arbitration agreement, which, of course, is also, as we all know, separate, legally speaking, right. from the main argu- agreement. Right. Because you have the parties to the settlement agreement. It says, by and between this settlement agreement, by and between EC and DD on the one part and PP on the other part. So you have the parties to the entire agreement. You have EC being a party to the entire agreement, but now you have, obviously, the disputes is, is only between DD and PP. However, the, the, the funny wrinkle in this all is that EC has started this arbitration allegedly based on a dispute between PP and Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't know that Donald Trump is DD yet. But Stormy Daniels hasn't done anything else except talk about Donald Trump. <laughs> but now they're saying that he's not DD. So, like, this is the whole funny part of this is, like, how you're going to go through an entire arbor- like arbitration and prove that you're enforcing this settlement agreement for nothing that Stormy Daniels has ever done. Man, would I want to be the sole arbitrator in California <laughs> yeah. hearing this case? It's got to be, like, the, the biggest arbitration case for it quite would be some like this. time. It would be like, <clears throat> I'm going to be talking for about one hour on this topic. <laughs> uh, would the arbitrator like to hear our opening argument? No, no, no. <laughs> No, no. I got this. <laughs> Let me school you real quick. Um, and then a funny thing that I, we also need to say is that there's a side letter, Exhibit A, to the settlement agreement, which is basically them saying who their pseudonyms are. But the interesting thing about that is that Donald Trump didn't sign it. So Stormy has signed it and says, I'm PP, but Donald Trump has not signed it and said that he's DD. So that's another like funny wrinkle in this. So now, if, if you were in the very unlucky position of being uh, Donald Trump's attorney, mm-hmm. so not DD's or anybody else's, but the actual physical president, mm-hmm. Donald Trump, and we assume, which I think is a reasonable assumption, that he is somehow involved in this affair, not necessarily by, by himself you know, being involved in the contractual drafting, the stuff that we've been looking at now. What would you advise him to do? Advise the president? Yeah. Because it, it, lo- it looks like he doesn't have a lot of lawyers left on his uh, retainer. <laughs> I, I mean, you have to. I mean, I think that you should admit that you're a DD and then enforce and go and enforce the agreement and fight this declaratory judgment. And because he's going to be there and be like this, you know, he's going to be a witness and be talking about what was talked about during the contracting, you know, phase, even though it's not relevant evidence in California court, but you can bring it in under certain exceptions. But you need to fight this in court and then get the declaratory judgment that says this is a valid agreement. Then you go to arbitration and say she has now breached the agreement. And then there's liquidated damages, which is another thing, cannot even be enforceable um, in the arbitration. But, I mean, he should get $1.13 million, which, according to his broke ass, should be a lot of money. (laughs) I agree. I think the only sound legal advice, just Mm -hmm. ignoring politics, is, of course, to raise your hand and participate in both proceedings to the fullest extent you're actually able to do it with your assistance of lawyers. But then there are, of course, political (laughs) implications involved in in raising your hand and saying, I am I have a hush agreement that I put into force one month before the election. And also, poor lawyer. 
the Cohen guy who yeah. represents him, who also, it seems from the reporting, paid this 130000 out of his own funds. That's what he in said. In order to, uh, to insulate the president. Well, yeah, and that's, this guy's basically going to... Be- who's... Uh, Who's the press secretary who was got red in the face every time we talked and then got fired? Oh, yeah. I, I was going to say uh, Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> exactly. That's not his name. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> when Melissa McCarthy goes up there, I mean, it's they go to bat for Trump. I mean, because that's how Trump bases anyone that he ever appoints is based on their loyalty. So this guy's really going to bat for him and taking the entire blame, saying, I drafted the agreement. I paid the money. This is all me. I'm. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah. And that, that also begs the interesting question, is there an arbitration lawyer, an actual arbitration lawyer out there who would be able to step up <laughs> and take over this? Because it's so obvious that this Cohen guy is more a soldier than a lawyer. Yeah. And not a very good lawyer. No, no, no. So imagine a big firm like a New York lawyer. It's a very small case, but it's still a case that, that will guarantee your, your uh, 15 minutes of fame. Exactly. Well, I can't wait to see. Well, hopefully... The uh, declaratory judgment goes through, and then she can just speak freely. Yeah, and then Donald Trump is caught in a lie. <laughs> but it's an interesting interaction between the courts and the arbitration, especially in this sense. Like, could you, could Trump in the court or Dee Dee in the court say, "Okay, well, this needs to be referred to arbitration"? Because I don't think they've even responded yet to this complaint. Um, but then would they just basically say that this is, you know, the improper venue for this dispute? Yeah, that I mean, that's the, the ordinary run of things. That's what you're supposed to be doing. When you have an arbitration agreement and, and one of the parties go to court, of course, you tell the court there's an arbitration agreement, exactly. which is an obstacle to taking this to court. Exactly. But once again, that presupposes that you recognize that you're party to the arbitration agreement. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we chopped this up to death. Yeah. And I like that we did not make this into happy fun time. This is almost this a is substantive. substantive. The, the, the borders are blurring when it comes to United <laughs> States politics and, and legal development. We got non-signatories. We have applicable law. We have, you know... Clause drafting. Clause drafting. And that, let me just say that for the record once again. We have seminars in Uppsala, both in commercial and in treaty arbitration, when, when the students are asked to, given facts and, and uh, background, they're asked to draft clauses, and then we talk about the different groups and which, which clauses they came up with. This would fail. Right. So much. It's a, good, you, a great example if you want to teach it next year. Yeah. Yeah, actually, just to get some uh, some fun into it. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move on. So did you see this uh, Robert De Niro movie, The Arbitration Intern? <laughs> yes, and I'm Anna Hathaway. <laughs> 79-year-old Robert De Niro goes to the Boys in Plimpton to do an arbitration internship. and No, that didn't Could happen. Could you imagine? But uh, it's a universal thing, though. It's not just in arbitration. We have the intern culture is taking over the world. I did my only serious internship at uh, Ancetral uh, in 2012, probably. And at that time, at the UN, there was a big movement, which I think still exists, across the UN, all the different branches and organizations, that we should stop using unpaid interns. Mm-hmm. It was almost like a union effort. Why did you say serious internship? Because I also did summer. And those aren't serious. Those are even more serious. Okay, okay. serious was actually the wrong word. Sorry, my English not so good. <laughs> no, I thought it was interesting. Cause I, I think it's What like... I meant by actual internship, because I think if you get paid, it's not an internship. That's, ah, maybe okay. that's just my personal. Okay. I make a distinction. This is interesting. Let's talk about this. Yeah. I make, an, I make a distinction between traineeship and internships. And uh-huh. Internships are temporary in nature, and they're typically not paid. Gotcha. Whereas traineeships are sort of the first step on, on the ladder, and you're paid, although uh, very humbly, typically. Right. Okay. Understood. So, so when I did two summers at two different law firms, like many law students do, that that was like my summer job, basically. That's different from an internship in my world. Yeah. And in the U.S., I mean, we have the same name for it, but it's you're right. I mean, there's two different types of things. Is it called summer internship in the yeah. U.S. where you work for like eight weeks with a good salary? It depends on the firm, but you call it an internship. You call it. I mean, you, yeah. you summer. No, you don't. As a verb, I you summer. Yeah. yeah, you're a summer associate. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's, that's different from being an intern. An intern uh, is the guy who does the, you know, brings the coffee. I think okay, but I still think that the conclusion is the same, which is my position in this discussion, which is that it's all a bunch of bogus, a bunch of bogus. <laughs> I don't agree. A bag full of bogus. In what sense? 
I know. Let me preempt you. You think this because you know and see all these people who do four different internships for six weeks each, expecting that to be a good career start, which it sometimes is, but it's also just a, a, a way to exploit people and have them work for free or almost free. Yes. And have you, you were summer, so let's call you the summer that you did in a firm. You were there for two months. You had like 15 parties. You did laser tag. You had like, let's go and meet and greet, <laughs> go kart. Right, exactly. It's like you're not being a lawyer at all. And then if you think about any case that you've ever had or anything you've ever worked on and you worked for two months, not as a real like associate, but just as kind of like to fill in the gaps. I mean, how much are you really going to delve into, like, what is extremely useful to, like, be a lawyer? I read Jon Paulson's Denial of Justice the mm-hmm. first summer I worked for a law firm, which set me on the investor state path. So, actually, come to think of it, to a certain extent, I, I have to thank my, my summer internship for putting me on, on the arbitration path. Which I, but I see your point, of course. That didn't make me uh, into an arbitration lawyer. It piqued your interest. Yeah. Yeah, right. it really did. And it also, I mean, it's also, you're what, like 24? You're barely out of puberty. You're there to just get a, a taste of what it's like. Maybe it's right. not for you. You're not supposed to be there to, to cross-examine people in the Supreme Court. You're, you're there to just get an insight into what it's like working for a law firm. You're right. Like how to use the copy machine. Yeah. And how yeah, to do but, like... Yeah, and also like the, from, from, uh, yes, we have to edit. From what? The English, English expression, from the first to the last thing of the whole process, the grind to the A to year. Z? The, no, yeah, no, that's a better one. A, A to Z, head to toe, front to back. Ax limpa in Swedish. <laughs> There's, there is one. Let, let, bear with me, we'll edit this out. I don't think we're going to edit this out. <laughs> uh, no, it just translates to from beginning to end, from start to finish. Yeah. Okay, fuck it. So you get to see a case from... Start to finish. Yeah, 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 basically. Cover to cover. Yeah. You don't for two months, but at least you get to see how they approach cases and, like, how how do they staff... If you're lucky, right. Mm. And and who does the research and, like, how how does the the firm environment work also in in the the professional case management sense, Mm. which I think is very useful if you're normally just, you know, being a law student. The thing is, is that firms are so different firm to firm. So, you know, my summer... Are they, though? (laughs) My summer in Baker was nothing compared to what I was doing here. And I was in a different department. So, I mean, it's just... And so my frustration is, is that there's so much importance put on students to get internships, especially in the United States. Because how it was before 2008, which is or 2010, which was called the black year, which was the year that I was looking for summer internship. Uh, Before then, it was like every firm was taking 25 to 30 interns. They were paying them handsomely. Everyone was like running around like Wolf of Wall Street. And and then 90% of them were offered. Were offered jobs. But the thing is, is that in the U.S. especially, second-year internships out of their three-year graduate program, the second year is the most important because that's where you get your foundation to get your job after you graduate. So there's so much importance placed on this. So, I mean, and then and then the competition goes even earlier because then you have to say, okay, well, you need to be good in your first year of law school to then set your career off for the rest of your life. Yeah, that's strange. But what, what about the arbitration-specific one, though? Because this is, after all, an arbitration podcast. Right. Because that's a, sort of a different thing. Because then typically you, you are already a lawyer in the sense that you have yes. a law degree. Yes. Maybe two, even. Yeah. And even then you do... A lot of people do, at least, several internships with major law firms and, and the good law firms as well. It seems that the major ones, the, the Wilmer Hayes and mills. the Freshfields and the Sherman, yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they have, at any given point in time, they have one, two, or maybe even three interns working for their arbitration group. Or like 10. You think? Yeah. How, how, what, what's the retention rate there? How many oh, of the Oh, none of them get jobs. So the premise is basically just to, to get, you get schooled a little bit. You get the experience. We get your work, basically. Okay, yeah, that is cynical, if that is indeed the case. I'm, I'm assuming that the HR person from any of these firms would right. object. I think there's some Magic Circle firms and even some in maybe Geneva, definitely not in Stockholm because it just doesn't happen. Uh, that It's just a mill. It's just like, okay, we'll give you your two months of experience and then we don't expect you to stay. Um, 
and they get the benefit of having someone who's going to work extremely hard because they think it's going to turn into a job. Uh, and then they say, okay, thank you, but, you know, nothing. But I guess most candidates are also realistic and see it as a chance to get their feet wet and, and like, experience the business. To do, like, an international stint. Yeah, exactly. And to put that on the resume. Oh, so when I was at Baker, oh, I was that uh, six weeks in 2009. <laughs> yeah. And we go-karted every, every weekend. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's but that's another thing is that especially in arbitration, you're it's typical to have multiple internships even before you get started in your first position. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm part of this. I, I tell all of my students to accept all of the internship uh, offers they get, just generally speaking. Yeah, because experience never hurts, and you you don't know what kind of door is going to open up. Most people get their careers going actually through internships, not necessarily because they they're extended an offer at the same place, but because they get to work on a case or they learn something new or they attend a conference or they meet a person in their new city that they're in. Exactly. That's the way you progress career-wise. Just uh, say yes to everything until you're too busy to to maintain it. That's true. That's actually true. When you get started as a first year. Yeah. yeah I mean, yes, every yes, day. Yes, yes, until yes. you're like 30 years old, you should just say yes <laughs> in life, generally, I think. Yeah, I think, I mean, I th- I hope that firms would be a little bit more generous. I think especially people working in disputes are so reluctant to delegate away a part of a dispute that's bigger than can you look up what this law says. Mm. And I think it, it, it should behoove everyone in the community to kind of give the internships more value so that everybody in the community benefits because you have a very strong incoming class when you have – um, juniors that know a little bit more about arbitration than they should, and I don't. I'm not even criticizing this, these intern mills type of firms because I think that they're doing a, a good service to people that maybe don't even want to work abroad, but they want to work for a little bit and they want to ha- test some experience to see if this is really what they like. Um, I don't think it's all that bad. No, I think it's a quid pro quo. I I, I really see the benefit, but there there are of course also in, internships outside of law firms which I right. think is, uh, speaking as a former unsexual intern, I think is a very good idea generally. And arbitration institutions especially. Are good on that. Very, very good, yeah. And uh, different kinds of NGOs. There are many different ways of getting internship experience, even outside of law firms. Although I guess in the, in the eyes of the typical uh, legal employer, it's not as attractive, probably, depending on your profile. Right. But, I mean, to, th- to be someone who is well-versed in the rules is such a big thing. I mean, with my secondment at the SEC, people have talked about that being, like, a very interesting part of my profile, whereas, you know, you were there when I was working there. Um, it was over the summer, and we didn't have a ton of cases, but I still was able to really enmesh myself in the rules and how they operate in practice and fill in the gaps that aren't necessarily in the rules. Um, and we had a bunch of interns there. That's true. That's true. There's always... I think at least one intern at the SEC, and I, I think it's the same. At, in, I know I know in Hong Kong and ICC in Paris is the same. So that I mean that if you want to distinguish yourself, that's really what you should be gunning for. I think as an aspiring arbitration lawyer, because right. the, the law firm experience you'll always be able to get, but institutional experience is much harder. And you get exposed to a bunch of law firms all at once. Yeah, which is the beauty of it. It really is. The problem is just like. In the U.S., and I'm just speaking because I was graduating during the black year, they called it, was it was just such nepotism in that if you don't have a defined internship program, then it's just like my dad is a lawyer and he knows this other guy who's a lawyer, but I'm not going to get a job at his firm because then it's going to be my daddy's firm. So I'm going to go to this other firm that my dad knows and it's going to look really good on my resume. The American dream. The American dream. And it's just like, oh, my parents weren't lawyers. My parents don't even have never even met the law before they like signed a marriage contract. I mean, that's that's the beauty of my pedigree. So I didn't know anything that was not like an official internship program. I had no idea what I was doing to find a job. But you did an internship at Baker McKinsey. And at the Walt Disney Company. Both in the States. So Baker was in Spain. Yeah. And Disney was in Argentina. Huh. Should know this about you. <laughs> so how did that work out? Why, why did you decide to go to branch out? Because you wanted to, to get your Spanish to a, a legal level. I interviewed with someone at Disney in L.A. And then they said, we have nothing here because of the hiring freeze, because of the economic crisis. But we, you speak Spanish and we know someone in Argentina that's hiring. That one was like nominally paid. So I don't know where you would put that on your, on your scale. But it was, um, and I worked in there in-house. Um, and a lot of people find that as like completely irrelevant to disputes work, even though you're looking at contracts and, you know, looking at distributorship agreements and putting out fires and engaging, you know, external counsel. And then someone there knew someone at Baker and McKenzie Madrid. Mm, my point. Yeah. 
say yes to everything and, <laughs> and it's going to open up. Exactly. No, 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 it's true, definitely. And then, yeah, being in Madrid has now led me to where I am today indirectly, but with your own podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that's what I feel about internships. Yeah. I'm you very... should take an intern. We're looking for interns. Unpaid interns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I right now I really need an intern to structure my own life but I since I historically the last four years at least I've had students very gifted master students that I've been using including right. Jan our editor who is basically our intern although he's twice as smart and twice as hardworking as right. we are <laughs> as an intern yeah yeah but there's also I mean if you think about London because Jan's in London I just thought of this but you have pupillages in yeah but that's a different chambers. ball game altogether Oof, that's dirty yeah Maybe we should. I, I met a few of those people, of course, when I was in Cambridge slash London. That's something we should do, I think, on the podcast. Talk to somebody who, who maybe somebody who's gone through it and can speak more comfortably about it. Because that's yeah. that sort of uh, rotation and the prestige uh, associated with it and how you get in. So many interesting questions that are, I think, alien to, to non-English lawyers. Yeah, definitely. All right, calling all interns. Uh,